From the National Soccer Hall of Fame in Frisco, Texas, this is Glenn Crooks on Frame. On Saturday night, former U.S. Soccer President Sunil Gulati, World Cup winner and Olympic gold medalist Abby Wambach, and photographer Tony Quinn all inducted into the Hall of Fame in its new location at Toyota Stadium, the home of FC Dallas. Ahead are the conversations that I had with Gulati, uh, Wambach, and one of the hosts of the event, FC Dallas President Dan Hunt. Well, first up, Sunil Galati. Now, I'm a big Manfred Schellscheidt fan, the former coach of the Union Lancers. They played at that iconic Farchers Grove in New Jersey with guys like Claudio Reyna. Uh, Manfred also the coach at Seton Hall University formerly and also with our youth national teams. In a video tribute to Galati, UNC women's coach Anson Dorrance talked about how Manfred helped Sunil get his start. One, one name that came up, and I, I wonder how uh, it actually worked out, uh, Manfred Schellscheidt. I love Manfred. And uh, so you met him early on. What, what was that story? How did he help you get involved? Anson got that a little bit off in his comments. Okay. So I, I've known Manny for a long time. Uh, our first main interaction was he was involved with the Region 1 program. And I was the administrator uh, for Region 1 for a little while. I was with Connecticut ODP. He was involved in New Jersey and Region 1 as one of the select team coaches. And then he was the assistant coach for Angus McAlpine on our under-17, under-16 team in 1985. So we got to know each other. And um, Anson had most of that right. But the one thing he said was, you know, he's okay. There was always this little divide between coaches and administrators. And I remember Manfred saying to Angus, this guy's okay. He's more like a coach with us. And he doesn't behave like an administrator, which I guess meant, you know, in terms of some of the, the rules and regulations, um, not that I was going to be doing any coaching. So um, you know, I've known Manny for a long time, and he's obviously one of the, the very, you know, the pioneers, one of the legends in the sport. Yeah. Well, so you did play, and you did coach a little bit early on. So why, why administration? Why didn't you uh... – why weren't? Why didn't you want to be in in the technical area? Uh, well, the playing part was easy. I wasn't. I wasn't very good. Um, and I did coach. I coached a high school team, actually a high school that my son would later go to thirty years uh, after I'd mm. been there, um, and coached in the ODP program and at Bucknell as an assistant coach. It's uh, you know the the administrative part came out of the coaching because when we were uh, when I was working as the assistant coach in Connecticut, the state select team. Um, the guy who in charge said, hey, somebody's got to administer this program. I took over that, then got involved a little bit with uh, Kick Magazine, met Werner Fricker, um, and, uh, and ended up being uh, much more interested. And I could write a little bit, and I had a computer, which made it a lot easier uh, back in those days. So in your, uh, in your speech, you mentioned it a couple of times, this 17-page uh, letter to Werner Fricker. So if I could... Just get back to that for a minute. So you you you, re, you ran a camp, you were involved in a camp and and you just looked at you were observing things that were just uh, well no not observing things I was in the middle of things I ran oh. I was asked to run the national camp for okay. under sixteen team a team that went to China for the World Cup a team that Henry Gutierrez Brian Benedict John Gwynn, Larry McPhail played Larry was from down here uh, played in and when you know I got thrown into it two weeks out um, and we went out there and no one had got any balls for the camp. Um, so literally went to Kmart on a Sunday morning and bought balls. We ended up having sprinklers go off on the field uh, out in Colorado Springs, and we were out there because we had free space at the uh, free hotel space or room and board, I should say, at the training center. And it was we made it work. Angus McAlpin, man, he was at that camp, uh, mm -hmm. and Angus was the coach. We made it work. We we got a team together, and all of it worked. But it was a mess, and um, the thought that we were going to put players in that situation when, and walking on the field and sprinklers are going off. 
I mean, that's happened a few times, but it shouldn't be happening with the national team. <laughs> yeah. And so that I'd seen Werner after that. Um, and we were in the middle of qualifying for the 86 World Cup as well at the time. And I said exactly what I said today. Your, your national team program is a mess. And he said, well, yeah, send me a note. Tell me about it. And uh, I did. 17 pages. 17 pages. Because you wrote it 17 because he said, don't yeah. don't write me a 17 page. Uh, yeah, I probably to had to effect. stretch it a little bit. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So, you, you know, the... What you've done from that moment uh, to now, where uh, I mean, a lot has happened in between, and uh, it must have been nice to hear the the words tonight from people who are uh, who have been very influential, including Abby Wambach. And you look at the women's side, and you know, there's been uh, there's obviously been massive development, but there's also been lawsuits, some contentious. I, I don't think it's content. I can't say contentious because I'm not in the room with you guys. It's almost uh, you both getting honored on the same night, and and that women's thing still kind of hang hangs in the air a little bit. The equal pay and all that. Ha- uh, but but she 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 made it seem very much like you were you're on the women's side. Um. Look, I'm not in the room these days in the same way. It is singly the most difficult thing of, of being in charge of U.S. soccer when you're president because it's about the players, and that's what we're trying to win games and so on. So being on the opposite side in negotiations or what can sometimes be acrimonious, and it's sometimes a zero-sum game, not always, um, that's hard. And so if you ask me the things that I miss about being president of U.S. soccer, that's not one of them. Um, and that's maybe the worst part of the job. Losing games is obviously worse. Abby and I had a pretty unique relationship. Um, and, you know, um, we might be able to figure things out if it was just down to the two of us in a way that's different than when you've got the dynamics of groups and lawyers and all of that. Uh, and, I, you know, I greatly appreciated her words given, uh, uh, given our relationship for a long time. Um, but those things, are, those things are hard. That's, that's part of the game growing. Uh, there aren't too many gentle labor negotiations and yeah. see how this resolves itself. But that that blend of being able to, you know, be close to an individual, but then sit in that room uh, across the table from them and, and dispute and, and argue and negotiate is, uh, that's tricky. Yeah, I mean, listen, it wasn't, it was rarely with Abby in, in terms of the CBA stuff. Um, they had representation for a long time. Obviously, the players knew who their representative was and they would input. But it was really beyond that. It's what the papers didn't say. And, and I've said that in public some, some years ago. Someone asked me, you know, how do you kind of work with a, the women's national team and their success or whatever? And I said, well, generally, um, I call Abby Wambach and said, what do we need? And she tells me and we do it. Um, that wasn't much of an exaggeration, obviously, the coaches and, you know, and so on. But sure. you know, during the Women's World Cup in 15, I remember um, she called and said, hey, this isn't going right. I can't be in this. I got I to gotta focus on playing. Can you get this done? And we got it done because she was right. Um, and she's got a pretty good head on her shoulders when it comes to success and wasn't asking for crazy things and wasn't demanding crazy things, but was demanding us to be better. And Abby not only made her team better, she made us better. Now, but then lawyers get involved, like you said. Now, Jeff Kessler, you, know, you guys must be at the same social events every now and then. I mean, you're both in New York. and uh, He's a Columbia grad. I was yeah, at the dinner yeah. where he was given Columbia's highest award, sure. Yeah. I mean, you ever pull him aside and just say, hey, man, let's just uh, – <laughs> or it doesn't work that way. That's that, yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> life doesn't work that way. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's a professional. He's very good at what he does. Um, I prefer seeing him at social events than in depositions, but – that's that's part of the part of the deal. What what's the most fun you had in the position? What what was what provided the most enjoyment? Oh well, I mean, listen, winning games with the national team is always a great thrill and the most public stuff. Um, but it's also seeing the whole the whole 
expanse of the last 25 or 30 years. So seeing MLS where it is today, seeing a women's league now in year seven, seeing the women's team win the World Cup is obviously gives you great joy, but it's where the sport is today. Um, millions of kids playing, enjoying themselves, the soccer-specific stadiums that have been built, um, all of those things. So it's specific moments like Abby's goal or Landon's goal against Algeria, but also, you know, going to kids' games. And I've been able to go to a lot more kids' games and youth games over the last uh, year than when I was president. And, you know, a four-day period, went to a high school game, went to a college game, went to a pro game, and went to a national team game. That gives me a lot of joy. About the 2026 World Cup, you know, you were a big part of the uh, stages of it as the chairman, yeah. and then you kind of had to, I, I don't know if a back seat is the proper way to put it, on, uh, on, uh, on the day it was announced. Did that take away some of the sour taste of just maybe not uh, 18, not qualifying, but more not even getting those World Cups, those bids? Yeah, listen, uh, 2010, uh, when we lost uh, to Qatar, was obviously a, a tough moment. Um, a lot's been written and said about it, so I don't need to get into all that. And having the World Cup come here in 26 is a great, uh, uh, it'll be a great event. But more important than the great event of those 31 or 32 days is the buildup between now and then of what we can do to build the sport further. And for me, most importantly, is what does the world look like, the soccer world look like the day after? And have we been able to use the World Cup as get us on a higher or more rapid trajectory on a steeper trajectory of growth. That will be the real test because we'll put on a great party. I have no doubt about that. The aspect of the, the, the unified World Cup, the, the two other nations, where did that idea emerge from and why, for yourself as someone who was pushing for this, uh, why not the U.S. just going in uh, by itself and, and, but adding Canada and Mexico? Why was that important? Well, we were having, uh, I was having two distinct sets of conversations. Um, one was with the chairman of Televisa, um, whose father had hosted uh, and chaired two World Cup organizing committees in Mexico um, and hosted them at, uh, it wasn't actually the chairman, but hosted them at Azteca, which is a stadium that is owned by Televisa. Uh, so Emilio Scarriga and I were talking about this for quite a while before it was public. And we both liked the idea of what this would do um, he wanted, obviously, the games in Mexico. I wanted games in the U.S., but what a cross-border World Cup would do for a lot of other issues, social issues. My wife happens to be uh, Mexican-American. Given all of the issues that have even come further into focus in the last right. 24 months, we thought it would be great. At the same time, Canada and the president of the Canadian Federation at the time was saying, hey, we should do this. They just put on a great World Cup in 2015 on the women's side. So we started talking about it. He goes, well, we're going to bid against you if you don't, you know, we're not doing it. I said, Victor, you, you know, you're really not going to bid against us, but you're using this as a, as a negotiation. He goes, yeah, okay, so let's talk about it. And in the end, um, the, the calculus that I did, uh, and we talked about this at the board, was I wanted with those two as partners, we thought our chances increased of getting the World Cup against whoever was bidding, and we weren't sure who was going to be bidding at the beginning. So what I said at the time was um, to our board was that I would prefer a 90% chance of getting 75% of the World Cup than <laughs> a 75% chance of getting 100% of the World Cup. Did you did you feel that way because of what had occurred in the prior bidding process? No, not only that, because, but because uh, what both Canada and Mexico would bring in terms of this unified bid, in terms of their outreach uh, around the world. Um, obviously, the Mexican Federation had also hosted two World Cups and done it very well. What they could do, especially in Latin America and Spanish-speaking countries, Canada had hosted a great 2015, and what they could do in French-speaking countries especially, and maybe to soften some of the issues that, um, that come with being an American national. Um, and I think, I think that plan worked. 
How was the give and take about where the games would be played, how many would be played in the States versus the other two countries? That must have been interesting. Yeah, it was, and you know, both countries wanted more games, obviously, uh, and we wanted more. We ended up, once the, once the f- tournament expanded from 64 to 80 games, it became a lot easier because now right. we could host virtually a, a previous, what would have been a 64-game tournament, we're hosting 60 games. Now, what was the timing of that? So when it had been decided, it, ha- the, the, it hadn't been expanded yet, so when, now you're really... Right, uh, yeah. right, but, but it, um, right, but we had how many games they would be hosting each. Yeah. So, so we had a pretty good idea where things okay. were headed, and by the time we got into the bid, we knew that. Um, and in, in the Canadian case, um, you know, they've probably got three or four venues that made any sense. Mexico right. had three or four venues that really meet the specifications. And once you back out of that and know how many games you could play in a particular venue and how many American cities could meet the specs with the stadiums, then it was, it was a, not an easy negotiation, but not a particularly hard one because, frankly, I think we felt we were the only ones that could bid alone if we had to. Um, and the other two understood that they would be important pieces of this, but that we would be the lead effort on it. But finally, uh, what do you think of the uh, increased uh, number of countries in the World Cup? I mean, do you have an a uh, well, I, I'm looking at you, so I, I believe you do have an opinion. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I think we're, we're now uh, on our way to 48 teams. Um, one always worries about what that will mean in terms of the quality. The competition, uh, right? The competition, yeah. the quality. Sure. And I'm especially concerned about uh, the third games when you've got groups of three um, and you're no longer playing simultaneous games for fairly obvious reasons. It's impossible and two teams advancing out of group three, but I'm sure we'll come up with some way to, to change uh, or to ameliorate some of the concerns I have about incentives uh, at that level. Let's see how we go. Yeah, 2018, uh, whatever happened there, I, I did want to ask you this direct question because a lot of, there was, there was blame thrown around, a lot of blame, and, and then uh, some of it was uh, sure. tossed your way. And sure. do you think that was fair? I mean, for you individually to be blamed for one what in essence was one game maybe yeah listen that's that comes with the job if you're in charge um i don't think bruce arena became a bad coach in trinidad um i think everything he's done in in you know over his career shows what a great coach he is he didn't become he wasn't a great coach in 02 and a lousy coach in 2017 that doesn't happen in the real world but you lose games um and we stumbled a couple times along the way so you know, that was a painful experience, and there is we, we win together and we lose together, and I'm in charge of the organization, and we lost a critical game. Uh, so did Italy, so did Chile. Going into that game, um, you know, we were in a similar situation. The other teams had been in the previous couple of World Cups, and those two World Cups, as you'll remember, in qualifying for 2010 and 2014, only by actions and performance of the U.S. in games that did not matter to us did Mexico qualify and did Honduras qualify, right? Mexico was out of the World Cup until we came back against Panama and scored two late right. goals. Honduras until we sc- and so on. So um, you can't rely on other results, but the, you know, the, the probabilities of us, A, losing the game in Port of Spain going in, and the other two results going the way they did, which is the only combination of results that could, that was painful for sure. We didn't get, we didn't get it done, simple as that. And I'm president of US soccer. I get how uh, I'm, I'm responsible for that, sure. All right. You're feeling, uh, feeling good? Feeling less stressed now in your uh, current you life? Know, or? Uh, yeah, yeah, most days. But as my, uh, I had that discussion with my cardiologist, and he said so exactly <laughs> oh, the same gee. question. Yeah. He said, you know, so you got a lot of less stress. I said, you know, yes. But I find that the absence of stress can be awfully stressful sometimes. And he um. said, I know exactly what you mean. 
That's Sunil Galati, uh, spending a majority of his time now preparing for his classes at Columbia University, where he is a senior lecturer in economics, always was during his 12-year uh, term with the uh, U.S. soccer. His classes are so popular that students have been seen camping out in order to secure a spot in the class. Galati shared the spotlight on Saturday night with a legend in the women's game, the all-time leading goal scorer, men or women, 184 goals, Abby Wambach. And it all started at Our Lady of Mercy High School, which is where the chat with Abby Wambach begins. Oh, I, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay. All right. I was a coach at St. Peter's College, small Division One school in New Jersey. So I went up to the F New York State Final Four in some, I don't know where I was, but I it had snowed a Hornell. lot. Ho that was it. It was Hornell. It was Hornell. I remember getting on my car and I could smell the, uh, I don't know, you could smell <laughs> the cows. <laughs> and uh, so I go, you know, and I'm, I'm just recruiting. I just got the job. And you're playing in this final four, and I'm wondering, who is that? Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line said, don't bother writing her, she's you know, she's already committed or something like that. But uh, yeah, that's the first time I saw you play, was uh, on, on turf, yep. with the snow all over the side. But you remember. I do remember, I must have been a senior because we, were, we got to the final that year, we played against Massapequa and we ended oh. up losing. Mm. Four to three, we were winning three to zero with 19 minutes left. Oh. It's the only trophy I never won. Is that right? The state championship. Is the high school and state you championship were present? I was there. Maybe you were the bad luck chunk. I could have been. I could have been. <laughs> well, a lot more happened after that. I, uh, I do. You know, sometimes you forget. Uh, you were um, there were a lot of kids in your family. Youngest of seven. And and br four, four brothers. Uh, four brothers, three, three. So, of how much girls. do you credit this, uh, your competitive nature, to uh, your your upbringing? Of course, I think that, and for a long time, I was like, yeah, my brothers just really, they took me under their wing because the two eldest were girls, and then there were four boys, and then there was me. So, you know, my brothers would run around with their shirts off, and I was running around with my shirt off, and they were putting me in goal and and slapping wrist, you know, slap shots uh, as a hockey goaltender. Um, we lived on a cul-de-sac, so we were always playing all the, ga all the games, all the sports. And um, I realized later on in life that um, my sisters were the ones that actually gave me my courage. My brothers just gave me the opportunity to, to learn it and, ah. and to develop it. So, so yeah, I, I, spent, I spent a lovely childhood learning about sports and how, how I could push my body. Yeah. So, and you're five years old when the first national team was born. Yep. So you're 10 years old, started really getting into athletics, and you probably don't even know this team exists. I definitely didn't. And you have to remember, this is before the internet, right? Yeah, this right. is before the internet. Nobody had really, we had the old school computers that you had like the Oregon Trail on it, the Apple old school computers, but there was no such thing as the women's national team for, for, for my purposes. I had never seen them on television, uh, not until 1996 when Mia started to do some um, commercials for yeah. leading up to the, the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta, the Pert Plus commercials and the things that I was like, wait, there's a woman <laughs> soccer player. What is going on here? And then I watched them win gold that summer. And then I think we all remember 1999 and how impactful that was and how it just completely revolutionized not just women's soccer, but women's sports in the world that women can do it in it 
gave um, it gave a new focus and a new platform for women uh, to to be who they want to be and to go after what they want to go after. So you went to college, you went to Florida, played mm-hmm. for Becky Burley. And, you know, there's this debate about college soccer. It's uh, how it works in the development platform because of the way the season's structured. Right. And uh, what, what's your feeling about college soccer and how it, how it prepares you? Yeah. Well, I think there's there's got to be multiple ways in which you have this conversation. First of all, every kid's different. And every kid, their desire to want to go to school um, is going to be different. If I were to do things again, um, and I can't, so I don't even know why I would start a sentence like that. But if I were to do things again, I really wasn't going to school to learn. That wasn't my intention. My intention was going to school to become a better soccer player and to learn how to become a professional athlete because my goal was to play professional sports. And by the way, there was no women's professional soccer, right? Like right. like there was a national team. Was there even did you have was there any notion to go overseas? Maybe there was some things happening I, not there. Not even there in my not, mind. Even no. even okay. though that some women would go play in Japan and and some women had some opportunities in Italy before I kind of made it on the national team. I heard stories, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a part of my plan. But I will say this, I think that a, a massive reason why our national team has so much strength is because of the college system, is because it, it, it is, um, it is a, a pool. It's, it's creating a pool of women, a pool of players that are getting um, more training, more environments that are professional-ish. Um, they're flying right. to and from, they're getting paid, they're getting paid to go to school kind yeah, of, right. they're getting paid to live there and eat. So it's a, it's, a, it's a place for women to go that other countries don't have because of Title IX. Uh, so in the, in the full roundedness of this conversation, I think that it is good. I think that there are a handful of players that come out of high school every year that, and maybe even less, quite frankly, that could make a jump to play professional straight away. I think there have only been two or three women in in the history of our national team that have done that, um, and those are some special players, right? Yeah, but I think right. for the most of the part, like we have to develop kids, we have to develop and keep creating and building on the platform of this pool that the college system actually provides our national team for selection, um, and then of course, the more we develop that that pool, the more that the pool can get developed in the professional scene so that our national team can become better. Well, it worked for you. Uh, your acceptance speech, I think a couple of things that stood out, but one was uh, uh, Christy Pierce, uh, Jersey girl. She, yeah. she may not remember. I coached against her when she was at Monmouth. Uh. She, uh, she talked about uh, the bus rides, and then you talked about the bus rides. Yeah. You even said... You remember a lot of those moments better than uh, in-game moments or, or things that happen on the field. Can you uh, describe that a little bit? What that meant to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that the kind of person I am. Of course, I loved playing. Of course, I loved scoring goals. But it would have mattered not had it not been for the relationships that I had with the people that I was doing that with. Um, I truly believe in the concept of what team and teammate means. And though our goals were massive and that that winning was um, a a part of our culture, the way in which we did it changed from team to team. Every team got to put their unique 
spin on it. And the, the spin that I wanted to put on this team was to treat each other as if you're family. That doesn't mean we're always going to get along, but that means I want to remember the times because that's not what I th- that, that that's what I think about in my retirement now. It's not it's not the sprints that we had to do. It's like, oh, I miss the people. Sure. I, I miss hanging out with and that's the relationship stuff that when you talk about business and leadership and teams, that's the stuff that you have to engage people with. That's the stuff that you have to teach people how to do so that they're not trying to make this leap from work to personal life that it's just like all blended together. Like there is no such thing as work-life balance. It's BS. Like let's get over that. It's just life. And we need to figure out how to respond in the most efficient way to our life that feels good. And, you know, for, for, for Pierce to be here and to have introduced me today, <clears throat> you know, really special, really special because of those moments that I shared with her on the bus, because I helped raise her children on the road, um, and because, you know, both good and bad things happened to us throughout our time on the national team, and we were both there for each other to survive it all. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we know the major moments uh, and the goal scoring. <clears throat> I, I do want to ask you one goal scoring question. Yeah. You're the all-time... You're the all-time everything in gold, men or women. And uh, it, it's an art. How did you – what are some of the things you did? So, so be a coach for a moment and, yeah. and, and instruct my audience. What are some of the things you did to, to perfect that? Fantastic in the air. We could just say, well, you're 5'11", 6 foot, whatever it is. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be good in the air. Right. You I, know? Had, I had a, an obscene amount of courage in – now I, I can safely say this in silly moments, <laughs> in moments that I had absolutely no business having any courage going into. I just, in terms of physics, I knew that I weighed more than most goalkeepers and most defenders, and that I would likely win out any kind of collision or um, battle in the air. Um, that is a way that it for sure uh, that for sure allowed me to score a lot of goals in my head. Um, the other one is, is I believed that I could score goals. And even if I had a couple of games that I didn't, I had amnesia about those games. Like I actually just really believed that I could score goals given enough opportunities. Um, but the part of that system that not many people buy into is this mindset that I can't score goals without my teammates. Too many people think I can score goals. Just give me the ball. But here's the thing, like, I can't score goals if I'm not getting balls in good positions. I'm not scoring goals if Megan Rapinoe, I'm not scoring that goal against Brazil if Megan Rapinoe doesn't serve in the most ridiculous ball that anybody's ever served. Like, let's talk about that athletic feat. I'm not scoring goals had it not been all the penalty kicks, had it not been for the the goalkeepers who stayed after practice and let me practice and, and... Right. Create different scenarios for me and, and have so, what we call like social pressure that, that we would put some stuff on the line, whether it be money or or some sort of, you know, silly joke that I would have to do if I miss penalty kicks. Like there's so much involved. But the truth of that is the reason why I was so good at scoring goals is because my teammates knew that I believed in them and I knew that they believed in me in doing that. And that is what the skill is. It's not about left foot placement, right foot strike, laces, far corner, this much trajectory and landing on your shooting foot, like all of that stuff can be learned. 
What is harder is to get your teammates to buy into you and you to buy into your teammates and that to be authentic. Because if it's authentic, you're going to score more goals than anybody else. If you could share one more thing, I think this would be important. Because uh, <coughs> you, Christy Pierce, uh, in her introduction, talked about your broken leg before 2008 and uh, said the whole nation was resting their hopes on you. Mm. And then there was one time, I've read an article somewhere along the way where you, you talked about the stress of having the, the whole country on your back. I wonder, um, and athletes these days, you, you see more of them talking about stress and what it's done to them mentally and psychologically. Yeah. Can you describe how that impacted you and how maybe when you did retire, that's part of what made things difficult? Well, I think that the stress for me um, was always something that I loved. Like I even though it's stress and stress is stress, like I lit up, like I come alive during those bigger moments. Like when I can feel my heart beating faster and when I can kind of feel my fingers and toes tingling, that's like when I wake up and I'm like, and I can, I can smell better and my senses are heightened and some athletes call it getting into flow. Like there's something about the, the adrenaline of the big game or the stress of the big game that actually puts me into flow. And <clears throat> creating that in, 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 in mindset and to be able to deal with that at the highest level um, was a bit of my superpower. I mean, I, I definitely think that I was able to handle quite a bit of pressure. Um, and, and in terms of being done with the game, um, for sure, that's definitely something that I miss. I miss um, but you just transition that into something else. I feel that a little bit right before I go speak in front of a big crowd. Mm. I feel that a little bit right before one of my kids is going to run in his cross country meet. I feel that a little bit right before, um, you know, some, something that my kid is going to go do for school. Like I feel it. It's just maybe not as at the most intense level, which is probably really like a lot healthier. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and your next step? My next step, you know, I, I wrote the book, the, the book called Wolfpack, and it's been wonderful. I go around to the corporate world and I talk about leadership and I talk about um, women's equality and pay equity, and I'm just going to keep going until um, people stop paying me to keep coming. <laughs> Was it at all ironic to you to share the stage with Sunil Galati? And we heard you both speak, and there's a there's a fondness there, but... You know, the equal pay thing is, is still an issue. There's a lawsuit on the table. Right. And that lawsuit, um, you know, that is that is Carlos's cross to bear. Right. And hopefully they can create relationships to be able to get deals done, um, deals that feel good to, to both. Because, you know, I think that if there's anything that history has proven is that investment in the women's game pays dividends. Um U.S. soccer has has invested more than any other country in the world. And that's why our women's team is more successful than any other country in the world. Two and two equals four when it comes to this stuff. And um, and so we'll see what happens, right? And I know that both sides are eager to get it behind them, um, but we're just gonna have to wait until the, the, till the court date. And, you know, it's my hope that Carlos can build the same kind of relationships that Sunil had with, with myself and with Christy. Um, everybody wants a deal to get done and everybody wants um, it to be it to be fair and obviously 
I am an equal pay and equal rights activist. Um, and I think that our women are going to put up a good fight. Of course they are. And um, we need to figure out um, we need to figure out what's next, right? We need to figure out, okay, how can we win World Cup and Olympics back to back? Perhaps the only thing the women's program hasn't accomplished, that's Hall of Fame inductee Abby Wambach. After the ceremony, I also sat with the uh, president of FC Dallas, Toyota Stadium, the home of Dallas, and, and also the National Soccer Hall of Fame. A proud accomplishment for the Hunt family to have the Hall of Fame there. And listen as Dan also talks about his father, Lamar Hunt, a massive figure in American soccer. Dan, congratulations on uh, this is the second uh, National Hall of Fame induction here at the uh, in Frisco at the, at the new facility, uh, but the actual Hall of Fame wasn't open uh, last year when you hosted, so it's uh, it's maybe got a little bit more of a buzz this year. Yeah, it's really fun for, uh, and we got to have it in sort of a limited basis last year where people were able to walk through the Hall of Fame, but I mean, everything was so brand new at that moment in time, and you know, thankfully the technology worked great. I mean, so much of it is based around NEC's facial recognition software um, that creates just a one-of-a-kind, you know, authentic, unique experience in the Hall of Fame. But to see people tonight having so much fun before they actually came into the event was a, a great thing. And it's such a unique, entertaining space. We find more and more corporations rent that space um, for whether it's a Christmas party, holiday party. Um, you know, you have people also sorts of luncheons there now hmm. it's been amazing how how full the whole venue is and the coolest thing for me is look we're telling the story of soccer in this country and it is a great you know rich history and then you know our inductees tonight you know abby is she's fantastic um i mean <laughs> the she is the goat um you know and, and truly with a you know that many goals on the international stage and sunil who's been such a longtime friend and you know tony quinn who's somebody who I had heard about, seen some work over time, you know, but but his command of the history of the game and his thoughtfulness was pretty pretty amazing. Through photography, through Re photography, him yeah, really, him reliving his yeah. photographs is even cooler than the photographs because yeah. everything's got a story. I was going to ask you about the, the Hall of Fame in terms of. Uh, getting people here like you go to Oneonta you go to you know, you go to Cooperstown you uh, for the you know you go to all the the hall of fame like people make it a destination you know it's part of their uh, it's part of their vacation uh, is that a is that a goal do you want to see it come to that uh, come to that level well, I mean, Frisco is a destination spot. I mean, this is sports town. I'm a Jersey boy. Sorry. I, 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 <laughs> I, hey, look, this is sports town USA. I've never seen anything like it. A community that basically has a, every major sports league has a presence in this market. Um, and then you throw on stuff just like the PGA coming here now, too. Um, and their headquarters will be here. I, I mean, it's just such a unique place. So it's it really is a destination. Um, and, yes, we want that to be the case for people. But we also, um, you know, have a built-in audience here. Their destination is actually soccer, so why shouldn't their destination be the history of soccer, too? Um, and that's the beauty of all the tournaments we have. That was one of the attractive things when we were visiting with U.S. Soccer. We have almost 2 million people a year go through this facility. Um, we were actually, as my staff was... I've, I brought a youth team here. So, yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. My staff was telling me today, or uh, actually it was uh, last week, um, that we will do 101 events on the stadium field this year 
101 between FC Dallas, North Texas Soccer Club, college football, bowl games, high school football, corporate rentals, other things. I mean, it, it's really a remarkable thing how much use this facility gets. And as a result, we've got people who are an audience to come hear the you know story of the history of soccer. And we've had a lot of good crowds, too. I mean, there have been days during the summer. I mean, families are looking for things to do in this area, and we get big crowds. And then we launched our STEAM FC program which is for sixth grade students in the Frisco Independent School District. And, you know, so few are wind up as professional athletes, let's be honest. But right. there are so many jobs in sports that young men and young women can have. One of the coolest things for me as a child growing up, people come up to my dad and say, I want to say thank you for your commitment to American football because of you, I got a job in football. I was a writer. I was, you know, you know, media. I was a coach. I was a general manager. I was a player. I sold tickets. You, you would hear that all the time. And for my brother recently in the last couple of years, when he and I are together, we have people come up all the time and say, I just want to thank you for your dad and you guys sticking with it because I got a job in soccer. I got to do marketing. I got to do, you know, journalism. I mean, that's cool. I mean, the, these, these sports are amazing and, and, you know, jobs are being created for people. And one of my bi dad's big things was always, you know, making sure that people could, you know, make an earning, make a living. And it's cool to create jobs um, and cool that people can be passionate about their job and love their job. I know not everybody loves their job. I, I tell everybody I have the greatest job in the world, and I truly believe that because I got to be with my dad. This was the last project here, building Toyota Stadium while he was still alive. Well, he didn't get to do Arrowhead with me and my brother Clark. And so I got to see his genius. I get to live his genius every single day but I don't think a lot of people feel like they have the greatest job but I think a lot of people who are involved in soccer the beautiful game think they have a wonderful great job well you brought him up but brother Clark and, and your father Lamar and uh, I, I just always have found it interesting and I'm so happy to speak to you uh, about what seems to be almost a dichotomy like American football and soccer it they don't seem to mix uh, you know, like uh, the coaches of American football have no, they don't follow the game of soccer at all. And uh, honestly, the people that are really into soccer, maybe some of them are, but it, they just seem like sports that uh, not necessarily clash, but they don't seem like they go together. Well, they do clash a little bit. And then, I mean, culturally, they clash in Texas. Um, I, I would say that because I think they're just in such different spectrums and for the longest time appealed to such different audiences. But that's all starting to merge together. Dad's story is interesting because he grew up in a time he was a college football player. He would have told you he didn't play very well. Um, and he also played uh, freshman baseball at SMU when SMU had a baseball program at that time. There was no such thing as soccer. Um, and I think a lot of people know the story of creating the AFL um, on, right. on the stationery uh, on American Airlines flight, coming back from trying to buy the Chicago Cardinals um, at that time, because something that was said there triggered that. But the story in soccer— I wish he owned the New York Jets. That's my team, and it just hasn't gone well. But anyway. I, you, you know, it, but, but the fan base at the Jets is really amazing. Yeah. They have great fans. They're fabulous and fun, fun to watch. Um, those old AFL teams have been really cool. Yeah. I, and and uh, see their pass as they, they grow. But soccer is really an interesting story because Clark and I's mom was a Rotary scholar. 
um, at the University of College Dublin. And so she went to what was North Texas State here in Denton, Texas, now North Texas, University of North Texas. And he went over there and visited her, and that was his first soccer game, which was a Shamrock Rovers soccer match. Wow. And he liked it. He liked the atmosphere. Um, he goes on to see the 66 World Cup final. And, you know, he, he thought the passion was so amazing for the game. Plus, he thought the other thing he really loved about it was moms and dads and brothers and sisters could all play soccer as a family. Right, That was right. also something he really loved about tennis. And he's also mm. in the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Right, so um, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's in the National, National soccer, soccer Hall of Fame. Fame. And the Tennis? International Tennis Hall of Fame. <laughs> and then there's about 10 more Halls of Fame out there. But, uh, you know, he liked those games because families could play them and enjoy mm. them together and he liked the passion so you know just if you go to a park in queens corona park you'll always see families out there playing the brothers the sisters the moms and it's uh that's that's wonderful to hear that that, that was part of the that attractiveness. Was part, part of the drive for the game and and he wanted to share it and he just went dad sort of went you know full in on everything he did um and he was stubborn because uh, the nasl should have gone out of business uh, a lot earlier than it did and when it came to coming in on MLS, he, you know, was right there at the very beginning. And when that, that meeting in November of 2001, where we're sitting in the chief's offices, it was me, my brother Clark, my dad, a guy named John Wagner, who's president of our sports company, who still works with the family even today. And we were on a phone call. We were in the vice president's office, a guy named Denny Thume at the time at the chief's. And the league had a, uh, one of those calls, and it literally went out of business on the phone call. And mind you, that was my first day on the job. And um, <laughs> uh, and so Lee goes out of business, and everybody hangs up on each other. They say, we're going to hire the bankruptcy attorneys. That's it. And my brother looks over me and goes, congratulations, you've been hired and fired on the same day. <laughs> and so that, I mean, that, that's a story I tell, tell a lot. But Dad and Phil Anschutz and Robert Kraft all right. sort of banded together. And I can just remember the evolution in, in this country, how it's gone, and now where you see the game, it's just totally remarkable. For you being in that room at that moment and now seeing where it's come is, uh, you know, must be remarkable. Uh, we're with Dan Hunt, president of FC Dallas, and uh, you're also on the MLS Board of Governors, the MLS Business Ventures Committee. That sounds pretty interesting. Uh, and I, I want to ask you about uh, a couple of things, but your academy first and how successful it's been in terms of the homegrown players, more homegrowns than uh, anybody else in the league. And I did, I did read something you said once where, you know, you want, to, uh, you want to win an MLS Cup sooner than later, which I think everybody everybody, everybody's going to say that. Yeah, you put your goals there at the top, of the, at the beginning of the year, you don't say, we'd like to finish sixth. But, but you said, you added the caveat of you want to do it with 11 homegrown players. In the lineup. I, so I, I'd like to be the first one that does that. But hopefully we're going to win the MLS Cup before then, um, before we get to 11. Okay. I, I'm proud of what Lucci Gonzalez has done here. Uh, Lucci and I go back a long ways. We were actually at SMU together. And, um, you know, he's been amazing to follow his path. And then he comes here as an academy coach and then the director of the academy. And, you know, we had a lot of great candidates for this job. A lot of people wanted the job. But where we saw the team going with this stable of young players, um, you know, it, it Lucci became the obvious choice for us. I, we have a fabulous academy. I hear it all the time, and I hear that you know FC Dallas has some gigantic advantage. Um, and 
they're the gigantic advantage if there is one is that we have a thousand players under the age of 12 and we spend all of this time all this effort and all of this money ensuring that you know we give them the best experience that they can whether they wind up as pros or college players right. or, or part of a team and learning some life lessons um, this market is incredibly competitive the fallout of the Dallas tornado was all these legends that stayed behind like Kenny Cooper and Bobby Moffitt they all started youth clubs and strong youth clubs and they played each other and the competition in this market is unbelievable i'm a product of the competition here to to see the success of these teams that come through and you know i so i would argue that it's not that we have some genetically superior talent pool here it's just the environment and the competition breeds success we just sat through listening to abby wambach speak about you know being competitive and being a great competitor right it brings out the best in you um and i think that's what happens and with our academy too the competition and let me tell you there are a lot of great academies i think you know what's happening in new york with the teams and that talent pool there is pretty amazing obviously la has done i think a nice job there in the galaxy um, and you see these outliers where the Alfonso Davies is sold from Vancouver for a record-breaking price. Um, you know, I mean, I could go all around. Atlanta's doing a fabulous job. That's why I wonder if you could actually get to the uh, number 11 because your top, top kids, you, you, you want to sell. It's a business. You're going to sell some of them, which has already happened. So uh, it is yeah. a, It's a business. I, mean, that's, I think that's one of the big things that American sports fans still struggle with is the buying and selling of players. And international players come and go in this market, and um, that's just how the global game is. If you get three to four good years out of an international player, they want to have different experiences. And you're starting to see American kids also have a, a different view. They want to, you know, cut their teeth in MLS and go abroad. Some want to stay. It's not going to always be the same. I think you have to adjust yourself for every situation, every player. And if you get good enough, you should be able to replenish each and every year. I ask uh, when I get to sit with someone like yourself that represents a club, uh, and you talked about the the Hall of Fame and the the number of people that are coming through, and it's becoming an attraction. Um, In terms of drawing uh, better numbers for the games, the attendance figures, uh, is it important maybe to have a marquee name? You know, uh, there's discussion in New York City. David V is no longer there, and attendance is down. Was that is that is that the reason? Because there's always been that big name since they began. You know, so do you do you battle that a little bit too? Because it's a financial investment, but then would that also kind of balance out from a from an attendance standpoint? Yeah, I mean, it's always a tough one. People say that, and they're one broken leg away from never playing again, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you invest. In no, I could see do, it being do, a quandary. Yeah, doing those things. Um, you know, we polled our fans at one point, and it was, you know, way overwhelming. Uh, they would rather have a winner than anything else. And so we say, okay, if you want a winner, this is how we're going to go about it. And we've won a lot of games here. Sure. We've had a lot of success over the last six or so years um, here at this club, and a credit to our coaches. Um, They've done a great job. And so, yeah, I think, you know, our game keeps evolving. I think it's less about the name, and it's more about the impact of that player uh, on the field. And sometimes those things go hand in hand, and sometimes they couldn't be any more different and so I think you're going to see um, you know I will continue to invest here you know I thought we were going to 
do a bunch of things this summer. We thought we had lost Santi Mascara. He saw he had an injury that we only see in football. It's such an unusual injury. Hmm. We thought, oh man, he's done for the year. And um, Cobra Zdenek Andrasek had was sort of he wasn't struggling to integrate. He had integrated in a lot of ways. He was just having a hard time getting on the field. And you know, I come middle of July as we were weighing all of our options, we find out Mascara is actually going to be back. And Andrasek started having I think what was deemed a lot of success in, yeah, he's in, starting tra- to, in yeah. training yeah. and then we put him on the field and it started having success on yeah. the field right. um, you gotta understand everybody's got their strengths and weaknesses and um, he's a neat he's a neat guy um, because he's so engaging I, I've very rarely seen a personality like his and his teammates really love him and he loves them back which is fun to watch on the field well and that provides a training environment that's proper sometimes you, you need that kind of guy hey w- one more thing if I could ask the uh, it just since you're so heavily involved and, and your family's been, you know, such a big part of it, uh, wh- wh- what's the next step uh, for the league? But uh, where where does it go from here? You've got a collective bargaining agreement that's going to have to be hashed out soon. Um, not sure how big a role that plays in the growth, but uh, where do you see it? Uh, the next step in the league is, I think, setting that uh, ultimate number of teams um, because we keep expanding and expanding. I don't, I don't know what that is, but that's going to drive a lot of the decisions here. Um, and we've got to raise TV viewership. Um, I think that's a big one. I mean, there's no secret in sports. TV money drives everything. And I think we've got to be focused on doing those things, which is going to be a quality of play. I don't think there's right. an aha moment. Um, I also think hand-in-hand, hand, though, we need the U.S. men's national team uh, to do well. I think Greg Berhalter is a great coach. Um, and there's been a lot of testing of players right now. I, nobody should have – I'm positive about what I'm seeing out there. And I'll tell you something, the level of communication is the best it's ever been coming out of the national team programs. The, the feedback we're getting, the information, the video, the constant communication is at a, a high level. That's great. That feels re- very reassuring. But – we need the men's national team to do well. Um, we need to improve the quality of play so that our TV ratings go up. That drives revenue. That feeds itself. And the biggest thing for me, the most simple thing to fix uh, of anything, if you tell me, is start getting global transfer prices. If we get dr- global transfer prices for our players that we sell, that money will be invested back in the league, and the product quality of our players will take off. And it will allow you to keep the young domestic stars, too, by paying them salaries they deserve to be paid on a global stage and keep them a little bit longer. They may still leave you, but it allows you to pay more. It allows you to go get international players that you need to fill holes, and that will very quickly raise the level of MLS and fill a lot of those buckets. So what is that? Is that a respect factor, getting the uh, the, – the proper amount, if you it, want to put it, it that way. I it, mean, does, it, the- it does feel a little bit like a respect factor, um, too. And I think just given how our schedule works um, in MLS, it's not right. on a global stage, it's incredibly hard to participate in the summer window. Right. Um, if we could create more of a marketplace there, I, I would love to see us. And I mean, I don't even know how it would be possible, but bifurcate the season into two tournaments but have a short break in between. So they will allow teams that maybe do like well that. in the first tournament. Yeah. And it, maybe it's a one-week or two-week break. 
and maybe teams that do well in the first tournament and they want to sell some players and they're eligible for some kind of playoffs at the end. I mean, there's all sorts of things. How's that received at the board meetings when you bring that up? Uh, you know, I, I think the beauty of MLS, um, and sometimes, you know, it can be a hindrance, but we're constantly, you know, changing and growing the rules. Um, and auditing them and editing them and I mean there's so many terms you could use um, and that's a young league we're still such a young league in the history of sports but if you look at the leaps I mean there are none bigger than you know 2001 to sell on a franchise for under four million in 2004 to the success of Seattle to the modern league today you know those things that kick-started those moments I mean there are more people who want to buy these franchises than we will ever sell hmm. That's Dan Hunt, president of FC Dallas. Also, thanks and congratulations to Sunil Galati and Abby Wambach, both inducted into the National Soccer Hall of Fame. This is Glenn Crooks on Frame.